To that question. That's okay. Um, for, for some of you, uh, that idea might be very new, and, and I understand, but um, our hope and our desire is that twice a year we take a Sunday to stop, to rest, and to delight. And I think it provides for us an opportunity to communally, and holistically, and corporately practice what we want and I want all of us to practice individually, and that is Sabbath, to, to take time to stop and rest. Resting is part of our rhythm of life. If you don't have it built into your calendar, you need to build in rest and Sabbath and time. And so we do this twice a year, even though this year it fell on January 1st, but our hope is that it shows us communally what it means to practice the Sabbath. Now, as we enter into this new year, 2023, which I can't believe we're still around, like, Lord, come. Come, Lord Jesus. It's 2023. We're longing for you to come again, please. But as we enter into this new year, I want to share with you a couple of uh, pastoral convictions that I sense and that are on my heart for our community um, as we kind of move into the year before we jump into our teaching. Um, Now, back to last Sunday, I did enjoy... Uh, rest, and time with my physical family, but I missed gathering with my spiritual family. I miss gathering with you. I miss being with you. I miss being here. And to that end, I want to remind all of you that one of the very reasons that we gather every single week, and the church has gathered every single week for two millennia, is to remember the true story that we are a part of. We gather to remember the story. When you get caught up in the chaos, when you get caught up in life, we gather to reorient around the true story that we are a part of, as well as the story that is much bigger than ourselves, which happens to be very freeing and liberating for us. It also reminds us of the family that we are part of that's larger than our own physical family. We are an eternal family. You may not know this or not, but my relation to you as a brother or sister in Christ Jesus will extend beyond my blood relatives that don't know Jesus. Which means that I am more family with you than I am with some of my own relatives. And we gather to remember these things. So even if on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night, you don't feel like being here on a Sunday morning, or you had a long week, or you're tired, or you're down, this is why we choose to make this a very habit. Because it helps us to remember the story and the family that we are a part of. It is no different than prayer or Bible reading. It must be a habit. It must be a practice. And I want us to be reminded of the reason why we come to gather and we come around the table. And it's to remember the story and it provides us hope in a dark and challenging world. 
second conviction for you all. A key mark of our community, I think all of you would attest to this, I hope, is that we do a really, really good job at connecting with and even caring for one another, I think. I think we do a good job of hanging out, being social. We do a good job of going to lunch. We do a good job of caring for people. Just have a kid, for crying out loud. You'll be cared for greatly, I promise. You know, have something happen. I don't want anything to happen to you, but if something were to happen, I think you will be cared for well in this community. And that's beautiful. But where I sense conviction and a tug from the Holy Spirit is the need to call us as a community to enter into spaces of intimacy, deep intimacy, accountability, and confession. We need deeper relational spaces for intimacy, accountability, and confession. I've been sitting in James 5.16 for quite a while now where he says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that, or in order that, you may be healed. We don't just confess our sins to God, yes. But if you want to experience healing and transformation, you must, if you trust the scriptures, if you trust James, confess your sins to another. House churches are excellent. Love them. Love mine. And they cultivate what they are intended to cultivate. But if you and I want to see holistic healing happen in our life and others' lives, we must follow the prompting of James and enter into tighter, smaller, and even more intimate spaces where we can pour our whole selves out to one another and call each other deeper into love with Jesus and obedience to the way. I truly believe with all my heart that there are some of us who haven't experienced inner healing because we haven't confessed our sins to another. There are things in your life blocking you from healing and transformation because you haven't confessed. If we trust what James has to say. And I want us all to experience healing. I think you do as well. Our soul aches for healing. And I think this is an important part. So maybe for you, you find one or two individuals that you really click with, that you trust, that you can enter into that space with. But it's going to take initiative. You can't sit back and wait for someone to come to you to say, hey, let's get into an accountability group or confessional space. Why don't you initiate? It's deeply important, I think. So those are two things that have been on my heart and convictions heading into the year. There are others, but we'll wait uh, and hold off on those for a later date. Um, Our whole slate, though, for teaching leading up to Easter will connect these dots for us. The first, which we start today, being about abiding or being with Jesus, attachment, and bearing fruit. We will follow this one up with a short teaching on beauty and glory as an essential component in our formation and transformation. And then Lent is going to be all about interpersonal relationships and how to live in the family of God. Does that sound good for you guys for the next like three months? Lay of the land. You know where we're going. Let's get on the train and head for it, Okay. Cool? All right. Any objections? We can talk after. Don't send me an email. Talk to me in person, okay? All right. Here we go.
I'm just kidding. You can sit, somebody's going to send me an email and say, I just wanted to say hello. Yeah. I'm going to be like, get out of here, man. Jeez, I'm just kidding. I won't say that. Christmas ended this past Thursday, celebrating and commemorating the arrival of the God child at Bethlehem and the incarnation. Christmas or Christ Mass means sending of Christ. It doesn't just mean the gathering of Christ. It means the sending of Christ or Christ sending. And this past Friday, we entered, as Anderson referenced, all of us across the world into the season that is referred to as Epiphany. So we celebrate the sending of Christ at Christmas. And then on Friday, we move into this season referred to as Epiphany. That single day or Friday is also commonly referred to as Three Kings Day. Anybody familiar with Three Kings Day at all? Three Kings Day is a very popular tradition in Latin America that celebrates the epiphany or the arrival of the Magi to the baby Jesus. And the word epiphany means manifestation or revelation or to reveal something or for our eyes to be opened. I love this definition that I found for epiphany an intuitive grasp of reality through something usually, check this out, simple and striking. The coming of Jesus, the person of Jesus, simple and striking at the very same time. The Epiphany season recognizes that this baby that came in a lowly feeding trough outside of Bethlehem at the very center of history is in fact God in the flesh. He is divine. And the gospel account that majors in the divine nature of Jesus is John's gospel account. And I have to say, I have been reading through John over and over and over again and captivated by John to the point where I really can't leave it. I've bought up real estate in John's gospel account at this point because I just can't seem to leave it. It's so rich and beautiful. So we'll probably spend a lot of time in John this year. So just go ahead and mark it in, the, in your Bible. Now, last year, our Epiphany talk was on the Holy Spirit. And all my charismatic and Pentecostal friends in our community were like, come on, Holy Spirit, baby, let's do this. And all the liturgical folks who grew up in like the Presbyterian church or the Lutheran church or Episcopalian are like, I don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Never met the guy before, you know? (laughs) And all the charismatics are like, what's the Bible? Never heard of the Bible before. (laughs) So, you know, we both have our struggles, do we not? Um, That's why I love this mishmash in our community. But last year, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the Holy Spirit because a key event regarding the epiphany of Christ's divinity is where the Spirit of God descends on Jesus of Nazareth like a dove. But at that moment, another key idea, theme, and motif enters into John's gospel account. And it is the idea and concept of abiding or remaining or resting. Now, John 15, as many of you know, some of you might not, 
is the anchor chapter where Jesus unpacks this seemingly mystical and mysterious idea of abiding using a deliberate and intentional metaphor of a vine and branches. And that is where we will eventually land as a community. But that is not where the theme begins. It actually begins in John chapter 1. Now, let me just go ahead and preface. When Jesus says that he's the good shepherd, some of us might not connect with that idea, especially if you grew up in the city. But when Jesus says he's the true vine and there's wine involved, all the wine drinkers can resonate with this metaphor. So you're going to love the next few weeks, okay? Jesus is the grand sommelier. I just want all of us to know. So just be prepared for that, all right? (laughs) But this idea of abiding actually begins in John chapter 1. So let's go there together. John chapter 1, starting in verse 32 and reading to verse 39. And I'm actually going to be reading and probably will be reading more from, just so you guys know, the New Living Translation. Not hating on the NIV. I've just come to love the NLT and its um, specific thematic way of translating the scriptures. So here is John chapter 1, starting in verse 32. Is everyone there? Excellent. All right, here we go. Then John, that's John the Baptist, okay, not the writer of John, testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven, we mentioned this, and resting upon him. Some translations might say remain on him. Verse 33, I didn't know he was the one But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest or remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost, depending on your background. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. He is the anointed one. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as you can see in these few verses, I just wanted to read the first few, and we'll get to the rest of the the section here in a moment, just in the first three verses, 32 to 34. As you can see, there is a symbiotic and synergistic relationship between Jesus, the Spirit, and the action of the Spirit resting or abiding. Jesus, one of the things that he does is that he reveals to us what it means to be truly human. You want to know what it means to live and flourish truly as human? You look at the person of Jesus. Paul calls him the second Adam. He's revealing to us what God's intention was for humanity and how we are to live, meaning To be truly human, if this is what Jesus is revealing, or one of the things he's revealing, and how God designed you at your innermost being, in your core software, you might say, at the most fundamental and formative level of your person, is that to be human, there is a symbiotic relationship between God, the human, and abiding. 
There is a synergy between God, humans, and abiding. Now, I mentioned a second ago, I personally like the New Living Translation because it clarifies, I think, a bit more and also shows in a roundabout way what abiding will produce in a person, and that is rest. It shows us that resting in God in some mysterious way actually produces rest. Jesus confirms this in Matthew chapter 11. All you who are weary. Anybody weary today? It's, it's, it's the first Sunday in January. We got people who are exhausted, weary, burdened, heavy laden, tired, anyone? He says, I will give you what? Rest. It shows us what abiding produces in the inner person. Now, the Greek word for abiding or for resting or for remaining, depending on your translation, is meno. M-E-N-O. Can you say that? Meno. Hey, all the Greek scholars. That's fantastic. Way to go. Now, this word can mean, quite obviously, to abide, to remain, to rest. It can also mean to dwell, to stay. I love this, to be present. And even, check this out, to be held on to. To be held on to. In terms of abiding in the relational sense, modern psychology now uses the word attachment. Attachment. Which is the emotional bond between a parent and a child played out in relationships over a period of time, in your entire lifetime for that matter. In fact, listen to this, and we'll come back to attachment throughout the teaching series. I believe that John 15 presents for us secure attachment theory way before attachment theory's founder and thinker, John Bowlby, and made popular in the U.S. by Alan Shore. So we'll come back to this idea of attachment. But I think when it comes to attachment theory and secure attachment, John 15. Matter of fact, if anybody around you at all is kind of into like pop psychology and they bring up attachment theory to you, say, hey, let's read John 15 together. Let's look at it. 2,000 years before this theory became popular. John 15 presents abiding in love. When we hear secure attachment, John says it's abiding in love. Better yet, Jesus in John 15 will point to this abiding in love. That is what secure attachment is all about. Now, the opposite of a secure attachment is fearful attachment. Some of us have attachments and relationships where it is rooted in fear. We are afraid of our dad. We're afraid of our mom. We may be afraid of a sibling. There's fear. However, John later in the New Testament says that perfect love, agape, casts out all what? Fear. So we will be looking at this notion of abiding and connecting it to relational attachment to God and to others. Because I want all of us to have a secure and loving attachment to God the Father. And it begins with your understanding of his nature and who he is. And some of you have an, a, a, 
a bad theology, quite honestly, when it comes to who the Father is and how he sees you. Probably because of a projection from your Father or a characterization. So I want us to have a reformed understanding of who the Father is and providing for us a secure, loving attachment to him. Because out of that attachment, as we will see, it will produce obedience by default. Your brain is wired that way by default. However, the primary connotation of abiding is about where a person is living. It's where we get the idea of an abode. Now, I know none of you use the word abode in your everyday language, but this is where we get the notion of abode. Now, how many of you uh, are interested or enjoy Dwell Magazine? Anybody in here enjoy looking at Dwell Magazine? Does anybody know Dwell Magazine at all? Yes, come come on. All the cool people in the room raise their hand. Chad, thank you, brother. Appreciate it. Um, Love Dwell Magazine, okay? Okay, listen. Some of you know this. Um, I'm not the most handy person in the world. So, like, Home Depot and Lowe's, okay. Whatever, you know? They got lamps and stuff. We can use those. Other things, I could care less. I enjoy decor. I enjoy aesthetics. I enjoy architecture. I enjoy beauty. All these things, okay? And I will say Jordan brought the handyman in the relationship, and I brought the decorator. So we make a great team. But one of the magazines I enjoy looking at, and their YouTube channel is fantastic, and that's Dwell Magazine. I love it. You should check it out. Now, Dwell Magazine's subtitle is at home in the modern world. And I was struck by that in preparing for this teaching series because our teaching series is called At Home, Living with God in the Modern World. Now, what I have noticed and why this teaching matters is that this magazine, like Dwell, isn't just focused on a home or architecture or where a person lives, but the functionality of living in a certain home or a certain type of architecture. It is interested in how a person dwells and how a person lives in that home or that place. And this all came together for me when thinking about this teaching series as I read Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. John 1.32 from the message reads this. John clenched his witness with this. I watched the Spirit like a dove flying down out of the sky, making himself at home in him. My primary concern and aim for this teaching series is to ask the question, what does it mean for you and I to live at home with God in the modern world? What does it mean to dwell? What does it mean to abide? What are the implications of such posture? Now, we have introduced in our community, as mentioned, our rhythm of life to all of you. But I want to take it even deeper over the next few weeks. 
The rhythm helps us to abide. But I want a picture of what abiding looks like. I want a picture of abiding for all of us to stare at and to look at. And I think the metaphor that we'll find in John 15 provides us that picture. In fact, in our little gallery out in the uh, the foyer there, on display are just some grapes for you to look at as a picture from John 15, as a way to think about this notion of abiding. But I'm not so much curious about just if you have a home, quote-unquote, or if you have these practices. I want to know how you live with God. How do you dwell? What does it look like? And what does it mean to go even deeper? And here's why. Whether you know it or not, your deepest, my deepest, eternal longing is to live at home with God. You were made by God and for God. Creator and created. A loving, secure attachment to God. John, in John 1, begins to flesh this out even more. Let's jump down to verse 35. The following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Notice that John the Baptist had disciples. Okay. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, Look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. So, this is their gateway, in John's account, to discipleship with Jesus, or to apprenticeship with Jesus. This is their starting point. This this is discipleship 101, right here. Verse 38, Jesus looked around and saw them following. I love Jesus here. He turns around and asks them, what do you want? Now, We could do a whole teaching series on desire and the nature of this question, the philosophical nature of this question. What do you want? But essentially, he's like, why are you following me? I mean, if someone's following you around in the grocery store, right? You're at Harris Teeter at Friendly Center walking around or at Food Lion. Somebody shout amen for Food Lion. Yes, God. Sheesh. Aldi, come on. Someone's following you, Aldi, and you're like, dude, what? What do, you, what do you want, bro? Like, what are you doing? Why are you following me? And Jesus does this with these disciples. But there's a deeper philosophical component to him asking this question. But we're not going to go down that rabbit trail in this teaching. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? The word staying in the Greek is meno. Where are you abiding? Hey, Jesus, I've heard about you. Where are you staying? Where are you present? Where are you living? Where where do you hang out? This is what they're asking. Here's Jesus' response. Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went 
with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. We see Meno appear multiple times. The idea of abiding and remaining and resting and dwelling and living at home with God as a theme in John's gospel account begins in the very first chapter. And I want to draw our attention to a couple of invitations in this passage as we move through it together. The first is that I want to notice, I want you to notice, the invitation of discipleship. First, being an invitation and a call to abide. The invitation here in this passage into discipleship begins with abiding. The invitation for you and I into discipleship with Jesus begins with abiding, not with doing, not with knowledge, but abiding. Abiding. To dwell, to remain, to hang out. Discipleship begins, guys, with hanging out with Jesus. It says that they went with him. If you and I are going to, A, satisfy our deepest longing, we must be with God. Very simple, but deeply profound. Because keep in mind, there are other faith traditions across the world that with God is almost impossible, apart from your performance. If you're going to become like Jesus, you must be with Jesus. Listen, you can't become like Jesus if you aren't with Jesus. There is no other way. And Jesus will confirm this later on, as we will see in John 15. And here is my first quote of the year for 2023. And guess who it's from? Mr. Willard. I chose a different picture to kind of change it up for us a little bit. If I am to be someone's apprentice, there is one absolutely essential condition. I must be with that person. This is true of the student-teacher relationship in all generality. And it is precisely what it meant to follow Jesus when he was here in human form. To follow him meant, in the first place, to be with him. If you are a disciple of Jesus, it requires being with Jesus, first and foremost. Discipleship begins with. Transformation begins with. Change begins with. Life begins with. You can't be at home with God if you aren't with God. Plain and simple. The very name Emmanuel means God with us. Jesus in the Great Commission says, Surely I will be with you. And we are now able to be with Jesus by way of the person of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ. And here's the deal, friends. You're either with him or you're not. You are either with Jesus or you're not. It's really not that difficult. We don't need a gray area for this. 
Are you with Jesus or are you not? There's no hiatus. There's a journey, but you're either with him or you're not. Some of us, if we're honest, we show up to life, our life, and the person asks who we are with. Kind of like we go to a party, someone walks up to you, hey, who are you with? And we're like, oh, I'm with Jesus. And then Jesus turns around, he's like, I don't know who you are, man. I don't know who you are. You're either with him or you're not. And he's not forcing himself on you. Notice in the passage, he's just walking by. He's not walking to. He's walking by. That leads us to our second invitation I want us to notice. The first is that the invitation is to be with God. With Jesus. The second is the invitation is to where Jesus is staying, not where the disciples are staying. We seem to believe in our time and era that we extend the invitation for Jesus to come into our life. Where if we read the scriptures, there's actually more language about us entering into him than him entering into us. In the story, he says to them, come and see. And some of us, I think, are looking at Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, come join what I'm doing. And he's like, I need you to come join me. Come be with me. Come stay with me. Come hang out with me. Come to where I'm staying. Jesus has extended the invitation for you and I to leave where you are and to follow him, to be with him where he is staying. The invitation is from Jesus to abide with him. We don't say come, he says come. To abide with him in his home. And as we abide with him, he abides with us. But we go where he is staying. We go where he is staying. Now, he will take you as you are. but you have to go where he is staying. Finally, something else I want us to notice in this passage. Notice John's disciples' curiosity. As I said, Jesus simply walks by. I think some of us think that Jesus just walks to, but in the gospel account, he's walking by the Sea of Galilee. He's walking by John's disciples as though he's going somewhere else. But John says to these disciples, look, and it piques their curiosity. What does that mean for us? That means that abiding and hanging out and remaining and kicking it with Jesus and with God must start with some sort of curiosity. Abiding with God starts with an interest, an intrigue in who Jesus is and where he is going. Because they don't just want to kick it. They're like, where are you staying? Let me come with you. Let me journey with you 
along the way. It must begin, abiding must begin with looking. With looking. It must begin with noticing. This is how our curiosity is piqued, by looking, drawing our gaze, drawing our attention to God. Here is a quote from Adrian von Kamm, who, like Mr. Willard, you're going to see a lot uh, in the, the coming months, so just be prepared for yourself. And by the way, that is not me on Christmas Eve. I just want you guys to know, okay? Someone made a comment. They're like, oh, man, like Christmas Eve? Like Spencer was wearing a, like a, he had like a collar on. And he like was wearing black and white. And I was like, well, you know, I do, I do this a couple times a year. For one, I think these are very important days. But I will say um, those glasses are pretty fresh. Like I would rock those, to be honest with you. Needless to say, I love Adrian Von Kamm. And here's what he has to say. Our whole life comes into play even in a simple act like seeing. Our way of looking is co-formed by the influence of our transcendent or our divine aspirations. Meaning your aspirations of the divine impacts your way of looking at the world. Our outlook, as it were, directs and forms our looking. So my question for all of us, for myself, and keep in mind when, when we proposed teaching series, oftentimes, friends, it's because of things I'm working through on my own. The question is, what are you looking for? Where are you looking? In your life, what are you honestly looking for? What are you looking for? Job? Well, you got it. Kids? You got it. House? You got it. Retirement? You hopefully will get it. Experiences, had them. Love, maybe had it, maybe not. Feelings, had it. Friends, had it. Accolades, we've had it. Some of us, it might have just been in kindergarten, but we had accolades, right? But the reality is, as I mentioned, we all have, deep in our human person, which we are very complex people, an eternal ache to be known to be seen, and to attach ourselves to someone or something that produces what it promises. We will soon look in a couple of weeks how children, the reason why they attach to parents is because they're the first ones to feed them. You first attach in your brain to the one that feeds you, to nourishes you. And as we'll see in John chapter 15, it is all about nourishment. An attachment. As Kurt Thompson, the psychiatrist, says, we all have the need to be seen, sued, to be safe, and to be secure. Now, these disciples, they knew their need for Messiah. They were Jewish. They knew their need. They knew their need for deliverance. So what does that mean for us today? You and I, as we are thinking about what we are looking for, where we're looking, and all these ideas... You have to know your need. You have to have an awareness of your brokenness, your shortcomings, your longings. You have to know the need and then go looking. Honestly, I love people that are truly in search of what is real and true. I don't care where you are in life. I don't, 
honest, what faith tradition you come from, if you're in search of what is true, looking for it, seeking it at the depths of your being, guess what? You're going to find it. But as Pascal has said so clearly, oftentimes people come to their faith traditions not based on what is true, but but based on what they want to be true. So we have to know the need. We have to go looking. But I think in our modern era, in our modern moment, I don't know that we have so much of an outlook problem versus an in-look problem. Because society around us essentially compels us to spend our entire life discovering ourselves. But that seems to be a black hole. Because when done right, it only reveals brokenness. It only reveals deeper longing. It only reveals deeper anxiety. It only reveals the need for healing. Self-discovery can only get you so far. Here's another another deal for all of us. Knowing your Enneagram type only reveals. It doesn't heal. Your therapist helps you reveal. They don't heal. The idea of therapy is actually about treatment. Preparing the heart to be healed. And I think all of us, as I said before, we want to be healed. We actually have to look out beyond ourselves to the divine, to God, to be able to experience healing. Jesus will later, as we shall see, call himself the true vine. And though this is a rich reference to Israel, I also think it can be said that there must be a false vine if there is a true vine. If there is one that provides us life and nourishment, then there must also be counterfeit vines or artificial vines. Ones that look real, that look promising, but ultimately produce heartache. You ever been into a furniture store before and seen fake fruit sitting on a dining room table? Sometimes the fruit looks real. Like, I I know no one wants to admit this, but some of you have picked up a grape and thought about eating it. Right? You're like, whoa, that's actually just rubber. But it looks so real. It looks so real. And this is the pattern in culture. It's the pattern in society. It promises that if you abide in this vine or in that vine, then you will fulfill your deepest longing as a human You will, quote, unquote, self-actualize. The problem is your origin doesn't begin with yourself. It begins in God. Yet, desires and longings, here's the deal, and here's the issue. Desires and longings that are displaced only produce disappointment. Misplaced desires produce disappointment and frustration. Beautiful for moments, but ultimately disenchantment will sweep in. Just live long enough. Just live long enough. There is this uh, natural artist that I have recently discovered, I think is fantastic. Her name is Rebecca Louise Law. And she does art installations with flowers in museums all across the world. And one in particular is of a hanging upside down meadow. I have some pictures on the screen for you to see. These are all fresh flowers, various installations different parts of the world, hanging upside down. I mean, that's beautiful, let's be honest. You're walking through an airport or 
some shopping mall and you see that and you're like, whoa, beauty, yes. It's fantastic. Stunning. Captivating. For a while. Yet at some point, the flowers wither. And death sweeps in. Those flowers, those beautiful flowers, will fall to the ground. Only to be swept up by a janitor making $15 an hour and thrown into the trash. This is the image of the way culture presents ideas that are meant to fulfill our deepest longings. They're beautiful. Some of these things may be beautiful for a moment. But they will ultimately turn into ash just as these flowers. But this, in some way, is what you're looking for. It's what you want. It's a picture of flourishing. It's a picture of beauty. It's a picture of goodness. But is it true? Is it eternal? Is it lasting? And as we will discover, the only way that you and I can flourish at a core level is to abide in the true vine. In John 15, it's as though Jesus is saying this, and I want you all to notice this at the deepest part of your being, that the life that you long for, Jesus says, is found in me. Now, he's either, according to C.S. Lewis, a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He says the life that you're longing for is found in me. Or as St. Augustine so famously said, and we've used this quite often, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Our hearts are utterly restless, confused, and chaotic until they find rest in their Creator. So the question today may not be so much, what are you looking for? But rather, what or who are you looking at? Who or what has the ultimate attention of your heart and mind? Thoughts. Your will, your decisions, your choices. Your sense of joy, which we'll speak to as well. And as we enter into this year seeking to reorient our lives, seeking to center ourselves, I want us to be a people who rest, who dwell, abide, and look at Jesus. Honestly, you want to practice for the year? Look at Jesus. Look at him. Now, some of you are like, how do we do that? Jesus isn't here in the flesh anymore. Let me introduce you to the Holy Spirit. I love that our Catholic friends call nature God's second sacred book. Here's an encouragement for you this year. Spend some time in God's creation and just spend some time in silence. You want a starting point, honestly? If you're like, honestly, I don't do contemplation. I don't do silence. And I resonate. I get you. I get you. I'm fidgety. I'm antsy. I like to scroll just like all y'all do. Okay? Go for a 15-minute walk a day. Just go for a walk and just say, Lord, here I am. That's, that's all. It's not complex. Start there. I want us to be a people who abide, 
But here's where it gets tricky. Are you curious enough and courageous enough to go where he is staying? On the first Sunday, I'm going to get Anderson to come on up. On the first Sunday of Epiphany, a season that is marked by revelation and eyes and hearts being opened, Jesus bids you and I come and see. The fascinating thing about sight is that though our eyes may be open, there could be things blocking what's on the other side. We could be looking at something, but there are other things that are blocking our sight. Just go drive down Wendover at 5 o'clock. There may be things blocking your sight. And you need to have an awareness of what are those things blocking your sight. Good things. I'm not saying they're bad things. But they have to be in proper place. Epiphany is about eyes being opened Hearts being opened, realizing in a split second, in a simple and striking way that Jesus is who he says he is. That Jesus is actually God incarnate. And he bids you and I today, today, first Sunday of this year, he bids you come and see. In other words, come and experience me. Come hang out with me. Let's spend time together. Some of us, if we're honest, our relationship with Jesus is more visitation than living. We visit Jesus occasionally like he's our elderly grandmother. And she's great. We all love our grandmothers. But Jesus is like, come live with me. Pack your bags. Move up out of your apartment. And come move in. guess what? It's in community. It's a communal house. Which makes it somewhat challenging because we got to live with each other. You ever had roommates before? It's challenging. But Jesus is like, come live with us. Let's live together. That's the invitation. Come and see. But are you curious enough? Are you intrigued enough? Or does all the years of baggage block the curiosity? I want you to return to being like a child today and have a fresh sense of imagination and wonder about the person of Jesus. I remember hearing Megan talk about Nathan and this little boy who's like four years old expressing the desire to know God. I do it. He's four years old. There's a curiosity. I want to spark that kid-like curiosity in you today. He says to you, come and see. Come and experience me. Rebecca Letterman, who's someone I've gotten to know recently, who's a professor of spiritual formation, she says this, the heart has response ability. Your heart has response ability. The invitation has been extended. Grace has been extended for you to respond.
day afresh. Historically in the church, the first gathering of the year is often called a covenant renewal service, which sounds very like high church, but it's an opportunity to reorient, to recenter our curiosity. We're going to talk about habits. We're going to talk about rhythms. We're going to talk about practices. We're going to talk about mental health, the human person, all these things. But at the end of the day, if you're not curious about Jesus, it doesn't matter. Your heart has responsibility. As the old adage goes, home is where your heart is. Where your heart is today, friends, that is where you abide. And some of you, if I asked you where it is, you honestly would not know. So we begin with some self-awareness. Knowing that Jesus is in pursuit of you and inviting you to participate in his divine nature, as Peter says. And here's the thing. Have you ever been invited to someone's house before? And their hospitality is so over the top, you don't want to leave. Honestly. And some of you guys do that really, really well. I'm not going to name names. Y'all need to experience for yourself. Go on a search. Try to figure out who I'm referencing. Some of you do it really, really well. We try our best at our home. Our spaghetti sauce is burnt sometimes, but we do the best we can. Okay? But it's going to smell like Palo Santo up in there, if you know what I'm saying. A little patchouli mixed in. Anyway. (laughs) We go to someone's home sometimes and we're like, honestly, I don't want to leave. That's the invitation. Come. Because I promise you, once you get into the cozy warmth of your father's love, you're not going to want to leave. But it's risky because you got to leave where you are and go to where he is. And some of you might be afraid today because you haven't been to the home before. And getting invited over to the home for the first time is terrifying. You don't know what to expect. Do they have scary dogs? Is their house going to smell funny? Is the food going to be terrible? Some of y'all go to people's houses and you know, you're like, I don't know if they can cook. You're a little scared. You're struggling to trust and believe that if you go into this home, he will actually produce life and rest. Or that he simply doesn't want you there. That you were uninvited and to show up is to impose. But that's a lie from the enemy and that isn't the case. He invites all of you. So will you respond today as we come to the table? Place of what?